This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. What I Saw in America by G. K. Chesterton Section 18, Chapter 8, Part 3, Presidents and Problems But putting aside all this vast and distant democracy which is the real majority of Americans, and confining ourselves to that older culture on the eastern coast which the critics probably had in mind, we shall find the case more comforting, but not to be covered with cheap and false comfort. Now it is perfectly true that any Englishman coming to this eastern coast, as I did, finds himself not only most warmly welcomed as a guest, but most cordially complimented as an Englishman. Men recall with pride the branches of their family that belong to England, or the English counties where they were rooted, and there are enthusiasms for English literature and history, which are as spontaneous as patriotism itself. Something of this may be put down to certain promptitude and flexibility in all American kindness, which is never sufficiently stodgy to be called good nature. The Englishman does sometimes wonder whether, if he had been a Russian, his hosts would not have remembered remote Russian aunts and uncles, and disinterred a Muscovite great-grandmother, or whether, if he had come from Iceland, they would not have known as much about Iceland sagas and been as sympathetic about the absence of Icelandic snakes. But with a fair review of the proportions of the case, he will dismiss this conjecture, and come to the conclusion that a number of educated Americans are very warmly and sincerely sympathetic with England. What I began to feel with a certain creeping chill was that they were only too sympathetic with England. The word sympathetic is sometimes rather a double sense, the impression I received was that all these chivalrous southerners and men mellow with Bostonian memories were rallying to England, and they were on the defensive, and it was poor old England that they were defending. Their attitude implied that somebody or something was leaving her undefended or finding her indefensible. The burden of that hearty chorus was that England was not so black as she was painted. It seemed clear that somewhere or other she was being painted pretty black. But there was something else that made me uncomfortable. It was not only the sense of being somewhat boisterously forgiven, it was also something involving questions of power as well as morality. Then it seemed to me that a new sensation turned me hot and cold, and I felt something I have never before felt in a foreign land. Never had my father or my grandfather known that sensation. Never during the great and complex and perhaps perilous expansion of our power and commerce in the last hundred years had an Englishman heard exactly that note in a human voice. England was being pitied. I, as an Englishman, was not only being pardoned, but pitied. My country was beginning to be an object of compassion like Poland or Spain, my first emotion, full of the mood and movement of a hundred years, was one of furious anger. But the anger has given place to anxiety, and the anxiety is not yet at an end. It is not my business here to expound my view of English politics, still less of European politics, or the politics of the world. 
but to put down a few impressions of American travel. On many points of European politics the impression will be purely negative. I am sure that most Americans have no notion of the position of France or the position of Poland. But if English readers want the truth, I am sure this is the truth about their notion of the position of England. They are wondering, or those who are watching are wondering, whether the term of her success is come and she is going down the dark road after Prussia. Many are sorry if this is so, some are glad if it is so, but all are seriously considering the probability of its being so. And herein lay especially the horrible folly of our black and tan terrorism over the Irish people. I have noted that the newspapers told us that America had been chilled in its Irish sympathies by Irish detachment during the war. It is the painful truth that any advantage we might have had from this we ourselves immediately proceed to destroy. Ireland might have put herself wrong with America by her attitude about Belgium, if England had not instantly proceeded to put herself more wrong by her attitude towards Ireland. It is quite true that two blacks do not make a white, but you cannot send a black to reproach people with tolerating blackness, and this is quite as true when one is a black Brunswicker and the other a black and tan. It is true that since then England has made surprisingly sweeping concessions, concessions so large as to increase the amazement that the refusal should have been so long. But unfortunately the combination of the two rather clinches the conception of our decline. If the concession had come before the terror, it would have looked like an attempt to emancipate, and would probably have succeeded. Coming so abruptly after the terror, it looked only like an attempt to tyrannize, and an attempt that failed. It was partly an inheritance from a stupid tradition, which tried to combine what is called firmness with what is called conciliation, as if when we made up our minds to sue the man with a five-pound note, we always took care to undo our own action by giving him a kick as well. The English politician has often done that, though there is nothing to be said of such a fool except that he has wasted a fiver. But in this case he gave the kick first, received a kicking in return, and then gave up the money and it was hard for the bystanders to say anything except that he had been badly beaten. The combination and sequence of events seems almost as if it were arranged to suggest the dark and ominous parallel. The first action looked only too like the invasion of Belgium, and the second like the evacuation of Belgium. So that vast and silent crowd in the West looked at British Empire as men look at a great tower that has begun to lean. Thus it was that while I found real pleasure, I could not find unrelieved consolation in the sincere compliments paid to my country by so many cultivated Americans. Their memories of homely corners of historic counties from which their fathers came, of the cathedral that dwarfs the town, or the inn at the turning of the road, there was something in their voices and look in their eyes which from the first disturbed me. So I have heard good Englishmen, who died afterwards the death of soldiers, cry aloud in 1914. It seems impossible of those jolly Bavarians, 
or I will never believe it when I think of the time I had at Heidelberg. But there are other things beside the parallel of Prussia or the problem of Ireland. The American press is much freer than our own. The American public is much more familiar with the discussion of corruption than our own, and it is much more conscious of the corruption of our politics than we are. Almost any man in America may speak of the Marconi case. Many a man in England does not even know what it means. Many imagine that it had something to do with the propriety of politicians speculating on the stock exchange, so that it means a great deal to Americans to say that one figure in that drama is ruling India and another is ruling Palestine. And this brings me to another problem, which is dealt with much more openly in America than in England. I mention it here only because it is a perfect model of the misunderstandings in the modern world. If anyone asks for an example of exactly how the important part of every story is left out, and even the part that is reported is not understood, he could hardly have a stronger case than the story of Henry Ford of Detroit. When I was in Detroit, I had the pleasure of meeting Mr. Ford, and it really was a pleasure. He is a man quite capable of views which I think silly to the point of insanity, but he is not the vulgar benevolent boss. It must be admitted that he is a millionaire, but he cannot really be convicted of being a philanthropist. He is not a man who merely wants to run people. It is rather his views that run him and perhaps run away with him. He has a distinguished and sensitive face. He really invented things himself unlike most men who profit by inventions. He is something of an artist and not a little of a fighter. A man of that type is always capable of being wildly wrong, especially in the sectarian atmosphere of America. And Mr. Ford has been wrong before and may be wrong now. He is chiefly known in England for a project which I think very preposterous, that of the peace ship, which came to Europe during the war but he is not known in England at all in connection with a much more important campaign, which he has conducted much more recently and with much more success, a campaign against the Jews like one of the anti-Semitic campaigns of the continent. Now anyone who knows anything of America knows exactly what the peace ship would be like. It was a national combination of imagination and ignorance, which has at least some of the beauty of innocence. Men living in those huge, hedgeless inland plains know nothing about frontiers or the tragedy of a fight for freedom. They know nothing of alarm and armaments or the peril of a high civilization poised like a precious statue within reach of a mailed fist. They are accustomed to a cosmopolitan citizenship in which men of all bloods mingle and in which men of all creeds are counted equal. Their highest moral boast is humanitarianism. Their highest mental boast is enlightenment. In a word, they are the very last men in the world who would seem likely to pride themselves on a prejudice against the Jews. They have no religion in particular except a sincere sentiment which they would call true Christianity, and which specially forbids an attack on the Jews. They have a patriotism which prides itself on assimilating all types, including the Jews. Mr. Ford is a pure product of this pacific world, and was sufficiently proved by his pacifism. If a man of that sort has discovered that there is a Jewish problem, it is because there is a Jewish problem, 
it is certainly not because there is an anti-Jewish prejudice. For if there had been any amount of such racial and religious prejudice, he would have been about the very last sort of man to have it. His particular part of the world would have been the very last place to produce it. We may well laugh at the peace ship and its wild course and inevitable shipwreck, but remember that its very wildness was an attempt to sail as far as possible from the castle of Front de Beauf. Everything that made him anti-war should have prevented him from being anti-Semite. We may mock him for being mad on peace, but we cannot say that he was so mad on peace that he made war on Israel. It happened that when I was in America I had just published some studies on Palestine, and I was besieged by rabbis lamenting my prejudice. I pointed out that they would have got hold of the wrong word, even if they had not got hold of the wrong man. As a point of personal autobiography, I do not happen to be a man who dislikes Jews, though I believe that some men do. I have had Jews among my most intimate and faithful friends since my boyhood, and I hope to have them till I die. But even if I did have a dislike of Jews, it would be illogical to call that dislike a prejudice. Prejudice is a very lucid Latin word, meaning the bias which a man has before he considers a case. I might be said to be prejudiced against a Harry Anu because of his name, for I have never been on terms of such intimacy with him as to correct my preconceptions. But if, after moving about in a modern world and meeting Jews, knowing Jews, doing business with Jews, and reading and hearing about Jews, I came to the conclusion that I did not like Jews, my conclusion certainly would not be a prejudice. It would simply be an opinion, and one I should be perfectly entitled to hold though as a matter of fact I do not hold it. No extravagance of hatred, merely following an experience of Jews, can properly be called a prejudice. Now the point is that this new American anti-Semitism springs from experience, and nothing but experience. There is no prejudice for it to spring from, or rather the prejudice is all the other way. All the traditions of that democracy, and very creditable traditions too, are in favor of toleration and a sort of idealistic indifference. The sympathies in which these nineteenth-century people were reared were all against Front de Boeuf and in favor of Rebecca. They inherited a prejudice against anti-Semitism, a prejudice of anti-Semitism. These people of the plains have found the Jewish problem exactly as they might have struck oil, because it is there, and not even because they were looking for it. Their view of the problem, like their use of the oil, is not always satisfactory, and with parts of it I entirely disagree. But the point is that the thing which I call a problem, and others call a prejudice, has now appeared in broad daylight in a new country, where there is no priestcraft, no feudalism, no ancient superstition to explain it. It has appeared because it is a problem, and those are the best friends of the Jews, including many of the Jews themselves who are trying to find a solution. That is the meaning of the incident of Mr. Henry Ford of Detroit, and you will hardly hear an intelligible word about it in England. The talk of prejudice against the Japanese is not unlike the talk of prejudice against the Jews, only in this case our indifference is really the excuse of ignorance. We used to lecture the Russians for oppressing the Jews, before we heard the word Bolshevist and began to lecture them for being oppressed by the Jews. In the same way we have long lectured the Californians for oppressing the Japanese, without allowing for the possibility of their foreseeing that the oppression 
may soon be the other way. As in the other case, it may be a persecution, but it is not a prejudice. The Californians know more about the Japanese than we do, and our own colonists, when they are placed in the same position, generally say the same thing. I will not attempt to deal adequately here with the vast international and diplomatic problems which arise with the name of the new power in the Far East. It is possible that Japan, having imitated European militarism, may imitate European pacifism. I cannot honestly pretend to know what the Japanese mean by the one any more than by the other. But when Englishmen, especially English liberals like myself, take a superior and censorious attitude towards Americans, and especially Californians, I am moved to make a final remark. When a considerable number of Englishmen talk of the grave contending claims of our friendship with Japan and our friendship with America, when they finally tend in a sort of summing up to dwell on the superior virtues of Japan, I may be permitted to make a single comment. We are perpetually boring the world and each other with talk about the bonds that bind us to America. We are perpetually crying aloud that England and America are very much alike, especially England. We are always insisting that the two are identical in all things in which they most obviously differ. We are always saying that they both stand for democracy, when we should not consent to stand their democracy for half a day. We are always saying that at least we are all Anglo-Saxons, when we are descended from Romans and Normans and Britons and Danes, and they are descended from Irishmen and Italians and Slavs and Germans. We tell a people whose very existence is a revolt against the British crown, that they are passionately devoted to the British constitution. We tell a nation whose whole policy has been isolation and independence, that with us she can bear safely the white man's burden of the universal empire. We tell a continent crowded with Irishmen to thank God that the Saxon can always rule the Celt. We tell a populace whose very virtues are lawless that together we uphold the reign of law. We recognize our own law-abiding character in people who make laws that neither they nor anybody else can abide. We congratulate them on clinging to all they have cast away, and on imitating everything which they came into existence to insult. And when we have established all these nonsensical analogies with a non-existent nation, we wait until there is a crisis in which we really are at one with America and then we falter and threaten to fail her. In a battle where we really are of one blood, the blood of the great white race throughout the world, when we really have one language, the fundamental alphabet of Cadmus and the script of Rome, when we really do represent the same reign of law, the common conscience of Christendom and the morals of men baptized, when we really have an implicit faith and honor, and type of freedom to summon up our souls as with trumpets. Then many of us begin to weaken and waver and wonder whether there is not something very nice about little yellow men whose heroic stories revolve around polygamy and suicide, and whose heroes wore two swords and worshipped the ancestors of the Mikado. The End of Section 18 The End of Chapter 8